Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Scott Luton and Greg White with you here on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's live stream. Greg, how are we doing? Sliding in on two wheels. Barely made it, but <laughs> okay. you've been with us earlier this week, folks. You may have noticed I've had some technical challenges. <laughs> Well, you know what, though, Greg, we are uh, no, outright overcoming any technical challenge out there. And I think you look bright and brisk and sharp and vibrant. And that's all Golly. the adjectives I could come up with, Greg. That's pretty good. Thank you. I appreciate that. As usual, you're testing my English ability. So, I feel great. <laughs> I do feel great. But uh, yeah, thank you. Well, you should feel good, at least for the next hour, because we're continuing one of our most right. popular long-running series here, Supply Chain Today and Tomorrow, with the one and only Mike Griswold with Gartner. Now, Greg, as you, and as all of our regular listeners know, today on today's show, we're going to be sharing a few developments across global supply chain, really across global business, and we're getting Mike to weigh in with his valuable one-of-a-kind take. Is that pretty accurate, Greg? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, the, you know, the great thing about Mike is he's been there and done it. And now he's talking to hundreds, probably thousands of people a year who are still doing it, either providing services or actually doing the supply chain thing, mostly in retail, which is so fascinating, so risky. Yes. So, yeah, he's the voice of the industry, man. Mm. So usually I get to hang out with the smartest person in the room. Now I get to hang out with two of the smartest people in the room with Mike and Greg. So stay tuned, folks. We're going to talk about the automotive strike. We're going to talk about and some of what's to come there. We're going to be talking about seafood transparency and provenance, really, Greg, one of your favorite words, and a whole lot more. So stick, stick around and let us know what you think. So drop your comments in the chat. Love to share those throughout the session. All right, Greg, before we have Mike join us, we got a couple of resources that we want to share with folks, right? Yes, as far as I know. As far, oh, as far as you know, kind of flying <laughs> blind today. It's okay. Right. right. <laughs> so today, so Greg, as we talked about on the buzz on Monday, and folks join us every Monday at 12 noon Eastern time for yeah. the tip of the spear in terms of supply chain and business news across the globe. But the most popular show in supply chain. Yes, Greg. Absolutely. By a long shot. So says whoever says that, Chartable and those other folks that tell everybody how podcasts do more than a nose. We're winning the race more, much more than by a nose. So, but folks, check out. With that said, we it's our LinkedIn, primarily LinkedIn and email newsletter. We dropped it over the weekend. We had a Halloween theme, but we featured on a lot of news that might be in your blind spot and including some great perspective and takes. And Greg, as we talked about the other day, each week as we drop this in, uh, with that said, you'll get the week's upcoming live events. So, Greg, it serves as a great reminder for folks that want to jump in and plug in and, and be a part of those, right? It is. And this one was really interesting because it was a ton of, you know, kind of catching up on news and additional news that we don't necessarily get to touch base on throughout the week. So, yeah, I like it. I mean, there's always something great in this thing. Come on. 
that's almost well, good. It really only takes like seven minutes to read it, right? So that is right. Totally unless worth it. Unless you're a bot and it takes you about 12 seconds. Yes. So, <laughs> all right. Speaking of upcoming live events, especially for informative, data driven uh, events, that's going to make you smarter. Check out uh, our live event tomorrow where we're going to be rejoined once again by Bobby Holland over at U.S. Bank and a practitioner from the transportation industry. And we're going to dive into the third quarter freight payment index for 2023. Greg, always informative, great discussions here, right? What I really love about it is Bobby's dynamism and what he brings to the show. I mean, Bobby is the, he is the ultimate analyst and he can tell you, I mean, he can break it down right there on the show and he does and then the rest of us kind of translate that into what it means for doing business day to day right so that is right that is all the facts that's (laughs) bobby Right. Hey, and you got to have it. And I love how we marry that yeah. with the, the uh, executive practitioners out there kind of living it. And sometimes the views line up and agree and other times they disagree and we lean into all of it. Right. Yep. No doubt. And it's winter. And, you know, we had this massive whatever front move across the U.S. about three quarters of the U.S. as a matter of fact. So I can't. And Bobby lives in upstate New York. I cannot wait to hear if he's covered in snow already. We're going right. to get a weather weather update on the front yes. end of weather tomorrow's session. On the front end, yes. What <laughs> All right. Syracuse or thereabouts look like? <laughs> to make it even easier, we've dropped the links to both of those resources. With that said, and the live stream, you're one click away from checking those out in the comments. Now, folks, I am pleased to once again, Greg and I both are on our team, to once again bring one of the best hours in global business discussion on the air, on the stream, on the digital today. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. A little background news. Music. So join me in welcoming Mike Griswold, Vice President Analyst with Gartner. Here's Mike. Hey, hey Mike. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing well, thanks. Hey, uh, November in Syracuse, yeah, there's going to be snow. Is there really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Safe. Yeah, I got that, caught off guard here. That's one of the reasons I avoid Syracuse. The golf season is way too short. It's oh, like, right. I'm sorry. That's right. May, You're from May to there. November. Yeah, yeah. No, it's way too short. Great basketball, Syracuse Orange. But yeah, the weather can be problematic from November to even April, which just is bad. I got so, snowed on in June in Detroit once. Yes. Yeah. Why, why, why? <laughs> so... Let's think of warmer and prettier, perhaps, locales. So, Aruba. my <laughs> that's really nice. That fits that category, Greg. But, hey, Mike and Greg, it's World Vegan Day. It's National Vinegar Day. Don't laugh. I don't know about y'all. I love red wine vinegar and balsamic vinegar. And it's even, get this, National Cook for Your Pets Day. Amanda, no stories. Don't share any stories back there. And as always, big thanks to Amanda and Catherine behind the scenes helping to make it happen. But on Friday, Greg and Mike, in beautiful, sunny San Diego, California, it's the annual San Diego Beer Week uh, event, which kicks off Friday. It's like 10 days, 10-day-long <laughs> celebration honoring America's finest independent craft brewers. Now, Greg, don't roll those eyes. This is just what I'm gathering from the promoters, perhaps. Due to all the craft beer breweries in the area, some call the San Diego region the capital of craft. How about that? Now, so with that, 
<laughs> so with that background, I would like to know each of y'all's, and let's start with Mike, the safer bet here. One of your favorite, <laughs> perhaps lesser known beers or adult beverages. Yeah, I'm not a huge beer guy, particularly on the craft side. For me, the go-to drink is an old-fashioned. Been having those for a couple of years. And I've actually, I make my own at home when I've had a particularly bad day. The one element that I haven't perfected yet, and, and if you like old fashions, one of the nuances, there's a couple of places that I go that make, make a smoked old fashioned, where they basically can put the glass in a bigger canister that they then smoke with hickory or some other <clears throat> type of wood. If you ever find yourselves in Vegas and Dining at Hell's Kitchen, they have a fantastic smoked old-fashioned that comes out of okay. thing that looks like a big, almost like an old carriage lamp that is filled with smoke. Uh, I'm trying to figure out if my wife will let me, how I can smoke things at home. But yeah, I, my, my go-to is an old-fashioned. All right. So, Greg, coming to you next. Hey, th this today's age, smoking things at home mean a whole bunch of different things there, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Gregory, <laughs> what are you, what are your favorite go-to adult beverages or craft? Well, I'd like, let me just comment on the symmetry of of vegan and vinegar day because both of them make your face kind of go. <laughs> yes, and you'll never doubt that either one is what they are because they'll always tell you. <laughs> yeah, I actually do love beer, but not IPA. The reason that people make IPA is because it's cheap and easy to make. I prefer beers that actually take craft to make. A lot of the lagers and some of the other heavier beers. And this time of year, particularly, I love stouts because they're thick and they're made for cold weather and they're made to be meals. Or sometimes a lot of Belgian beers are very, very mealy. So they're delicious this time of year. Okay, man. Well, both of y'all uh, may have me beat. I don't know. So my one of my go-tos that we and man and I really have enjoyed the last couple of years. I'm also not one for too many craft beers, but I've got a bottle of this that we brought back from Cape Town, and it's Pinotage. It's a nice red wine. It's a Meritage-like red wine, and it's not only just known as a South Carolina kind of born and bred in, in South Africa, but in particular, it's a Cape Town thing, and it is. I'll tell you what, it is delicious. We we may have drank more than I'd like. To admit, in fact, I had a little bit this morning. All right, so you I did, did not. <laughs> just kidding. Wow. This is bad. Wow. <laughs> Drink it all day long. <laughs> oh gosh! All right, Greg, and Mike, we're having too much fun. We got a lot to get to here today. Thanks for entertaining our fun warm-up question, and uh, moving right along, I want to get into something that's really dominated a lot of headlines over the last. I don't know, I'll call it uh, two months or so, and that, of course, is. The automotive industry and the United Auto Workers strike. And yesterday, though, good news. It depends on how you look at it, probably. Yesterday, all with the news out yesterday that uh, a tentative deal was struck between UAW and GM, all big three automakers that are targeted, that have been targeted, have now reached a tentative deal with the union, pending a union membership vote on all three. Now, in fact, also reported yesterday by Axios and others on the heels of the UAW strike, Toyota has announced a pay raise for its factory workers, all of which, at least here in the States, are non-unionized. All of that brings us to this interesting read via the Wall Street Journal, which focuses on the costs of the strike on a variety of levels and the labor deals made. 
cost for the automakers, cost for consumers, and that's just beginning, perhaps. Now, in a nutshell, the new labor agreements offer about a 25% general wage increase over the next four years. On top of that, Greg and Mike, the UAW was able to bring back the cost of living increases, which went away about 14 or 15 years ago. Additionally, the UAW scored things like higher pay for temp workers, the right to strike over plant closures. They even got Stellantis to agree to reopen a factory in Illinois that had been idled earlier this year. Two final points here. Fresh off this historic victory, as you all might expect, Greg, as we, you and I fearlessly predicted months ago, Sean Fay and the UAW say they are now looking at aggressively pursuing labor organizing efforts at Tesla, Toyota, and Volkswagen, who all have factories here in the U.S. that aren't unionized. I can't say that word, unionized. On a related note, interestingly enough, as car prices are, will go up, according to Clark Howard, the average price for a new vehicle was $47,899 in September, which surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, was down about 0.7% from September 2022. So a lot to unpack here. Mike Griswold, your thoughts on what we're seeing, where we are, and what lies ahead? Yeah, I, I will try to preface all of this by not trying to not insert my personal perspectives on unions, which probably would not be helpful for this discussion. But when the head of the union comes out and says, we squeezed every dime out of fill in the blank, and is using that as a badge of honor, I think that is problematic. The, the cost of vehicles, as you cited, is going to go up <clears throat> anywhere between eight and $900. Couple that with um, interest rates uh, that have gone up. It will be very difficult or will become more difficult for people to buy those brands of vehicles with just those two conditions. You look at other automakers that do not have the, the challenge of unionized workforce, the, the, the likelihood that their car, car prices are going to increase is less. So if you run everything out of an organization and now the, you've set the organization up to struggle to sell new vehicles, which means less revenue, th this I think we could classify as a, sh some people could classify this as a short-term victory for the workforce. To me, it is a long-term challenge for the industry mm. because you've already heard, in addition to the, the higher car prices, you've already heard the automakers talk about how they need to invest now in efficiencies. Mm -hmm. They're going to invest in automation. They're going to need invest in other technologies that is going to limit the workforce. It, it just is. When, when you bring automation in, right, things will come out. And I think over the long term, right, strikes in those types of things are not the long-term answer, in my view. If you think about it from a supply chain perspective, we've done a ton of research on frontline workers. And I think there are probably things the auto, work, the auto companies could have been doing or could still be doing outside of the, the guidelines of the union around just you know more flexible work doing things around creating flexibility around shifts right doing bringing some more opportunities for the frontline workers to have more of a say around the work they do and how they work right that's what our research suggests people with these types of of associates need to have an employee value proposition for them 
But I think it needs to be driven by the organization and not dictated to them, which is where we've ended up now by the union. So I think in the short term, right, the, I saw in that, in that article, jobs are now going to be pushing close to $80,000 a year. I'm not making a value judgment on whether those people should be making $80,000 a year. I think everyone needs an opportunity to make a living that can provide a good standard of, of living. However, I, I believe that these arrangements are not going to be helpful in the long term for the auto industry. And whether we end up here again in several years or whether we end up with companies struggling to sell vehicles because of these constraints, right? That's the world we live in. And a lot of this last thought is a lot of this is outside of the control of supply chain, right? right? Now the supply chain has to react to this with things like automation and efficiencies. So to, to me, it's a short-term win. It's not a good long-term outcome in my view. Well said. All right, Greg, your take. Buckle up. <laughs> um, <laughs> This is why we can't reshore nice things, mm. right? This, this yeah. is what we've been talking about forever. This is why reshoring yeah. won't work, right? It will never happen. And now I believe, as I've said for weeks, while these negotiations and strikes were going on, that the American worker has made their bed and they're going to have to lie in it. And that bed's going to be at home alone while automation does their job. Because I don't know if anyone here has ever worked in a union shop, but good work does not get done in a union shop. The nature of the relationship, that adversarial relationship, they have to bring in non-union workers to do the work that isn't specifically, and I mean strictly and dogmatically defined in a union worker's job, because they will literally say, not my job, and refuse to do it. So... It's, it's an incredibly unproductive environment, and there's a limit to the amount of productivity you can get out of these people, and I guarantee you that they are not interested in being more productive simply because they're being paid more. So this will not end well for the auto workers. It will not end well for the auto companies, and it will end with either automation, the destruction of at least one auto company, again, probably Stellantis for the fourth or fifth or hopefully final time, Get those junky Chryslers off the road anyway, and well, that and that if a Chrysler, if Chrysler gets off the road, that will hurt the transmission industry because every seventy thousand miles, a Chrysler needs a transmission. So that's going to hurt other industries when Stellantis comes off the road. So <laughs> there's a waterfall effect here. I don't have a distinct opinion on this, Scott, as you can tell, <laughs> but I, I think I do think it is. This is. This is an inflection point, right? And it's not a good one. It's not one that's going to create an upward traje trajectory. It's not one that's going to make these companies more competitive because these union workers are not going to work harder, right? They're going to wait till the next contract and grind it out, right? They're going to make sure that they get that cost of living increase every year. And the first time something goes wrong, they're going to strike. We're creating false economies by opening plants that should not be open, right? By paying too much for jobs that could be done by automation, and therefore they will be at some point. This is not unlike, unfortunately and oddly, I think this is really odd, it's not unlike this contract term that they put in for the Hollywood writers where you can't replace us with AI. That's the next thing that will happen is, 
you, the automaker, will have to continue to endure our second-rate work at low productivity levels at high cost because we're going to put a, a phrase in the contract that disallows you from using automation to replace us. I don't think that the automakers will stand for that. To Mike's point, I think, to Mike's rational point, not my point, I, I think that this portends a strong future for even greater automation or offshoring or at least nearshoring, friendshoring, whatever, of even American cars. Hmm. Yeah, I think Scott Greg's I'm sure point, glad I can't see the comments. Sorry about that. <laughs> Greg's comment on on nearshoring, you know, is it's like why well, we can't have nice things. I mean, it's spot on, right? We've talked a couple times together around this idea of a China plus one strategy. Where are we going to go? Let's just call it manufacturing in general, because you've already heard now. You you brought it up, Scott, around trying to push this, this unionization into other automakers, but let's not kid ourselves and think it's not going to get pushed into other industries. So this idea of, of a China plus one strategy, if we now take the U.S. off the table because of these types of dynamics, your China plus one strategy now starts to get limited. And I think your China plus one strategy, we've talked in the past about things to keep in the back of your mind, natural resources, workforces, I think you now, in your plus one strategy, have to have in the back of your mind the likelihood of this type of organization activity, whether it's governmental, government-sanctioned organization activities, or whether it's outside entities like the UAW or their equivalent, right? There's a significant um, union presence in the supermarket industry, right? The United right. Food Workers Association, something like that. Right. So your plus one strategy now, I think it's a lot more complicated because of some of these dynamics. Yeah, well said. And, you know, I think, go ahead, Greg. I think the bright side, <clears throat> on the other hand, is that people are, you know, this is a false economy for people clinging to it, what is a dead kind of job industry. And they are of a generation that won't be in the workforce for a tremendously great amount of time. So they're trying to cling for every dollar before they go into retirement and buy their 22-foot boat on Lake Michigan, right. irritate me while I'm trying to ski. But I think that the inevitability of human beings not doing this work is not going to be caused by automation. It's going to be caused by human beings who don't want these right. jobs, as we've been talking about for three years. People are staying away in droves from manufacturing jobs. That might just be the saving grace because we have created these right. false economies because it's my job, right? You can't take my job and send it somewhere else, or you can't take my job and give it to someone else. We don't even want to go into my philosophy on my job, but, but nobody wants your job going forward. So once mm. you get out of the workplace, then that job will be automated. They just yeah. won't hire for it. So it'll be kind of a, I think that could get, Mike, the car companies back into competition. If enough of these people retire by 2028 or so, and and they just don't replace them with human beings, they replace them with automation. Right. 
Yep, agreed. So as we move on, it'd be interesting to keep a, uh, a finger on the pulse of, I, as I, I dabbled in the automotive industry when I was manufacturing, the ripple effect through the supplier ecosystem as the pressure to find these savings. Greg was kind of talking about transmissions, kind of tongue in cheek. You know, it, it's going to have a big ripple effect. So a lot more to come. But I appreciate Mike and Greg, both of y'all weighing in. And folks, beyond taking our word for it, check out the link. Whoop. We've got uh, the link right here. My apologies. Might not mean to cover you up there. Check out the link one click away to give us your take on the situation. Okay, Greg and Mike, moving from automotive to Amazon. Greg, two days in a row. Wait, wait, wait a second. What day of the week is this? This is Wednesday, right? The buzz was two days ago. All right, so two of the last three days, we're talking about the big A and talking mm-hmm. about Amazon. All right. So Amazon's made some big shifts with its fulfillment strategy this year. As reported by Supply Chain Dive, the Big A shifted its fulfillment network strategy from a single national fulfillment center in the U.S. to eight distinct regional centers. Thus far, the move has seemingly paid off handsomely. Amongst the benefits gained, Amazon president and CEO is it Andrew, is it Jassy? I said it right? Jassy. Jassy says, quote, shorter travel distances and fewer touches mean lower costs to serve. But perhaps most importantly, shorter distances and fewer touches mean that customers are getting their shipments faster, end quote. Now, for prime customers, Jassy says they are getting their stuff the fastest in the company's 29-year history. Mike, mm. your thoughts? Well, I, we've gone from a kind of a squeamy story, the UAW, to really, to me, a really good story. I mean, this when you put this in the link, I was really excited to talk about this. Now, now, part of me was like, "What, duh, Amazon, why did it take you so long to get to this point? But now that you're here, it's where all of our research has been pointing for the last couple of years is around the, these local regional fulfillment centers, right? There, there certainly, I think, are some some inventory ramifications, right? Now you've got inventory potentially more inventory and more locations, which I think will might make some people skittish. But if you think about what was in that story around in, improved responsiveness, improved cycle time, right? All of that kind of stuff around the customer experience, to me, it, it's fantastic. It does, to me, though, highlight two skill sets that, that organizations need to have. One is a skill set around network design. You know, again, I, I said somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I'm not sure why it took Amazon this long to get to that conclusion. Mm. But if, mm-hmm. if, if in your organization, you do not have some skill and some tools around network design and, and have a process to continually evaluate the configuration of your network through the eyes of your customers, you're going to want to do that. And then, Scott, you touched on it at the end of your opening comments around cost to serve. Right. That is a skill, particularly in retail, that we don't see. A lot of other industries have really gained a lot of expertise around cost to serve. And what I don't mean about cost to serve, particularly for our retail friends, is it's not just activity-based costing. It's not just direct product profitability. It is truly understanding how much does it cost you to fulfill an order in store A versus store B, right? It's that level of detail. Because once you know that, you can make much smarter decisions around where to route orders. Hmm. So, and to me, those are two skill sets, cost to serve and network design, Amazon's had for a while. 
And I think if people want to take advantage of this the way Amazon is and will be able to moving forward, those are two skill sets you need to have. Well said, Mike. All right. So, Greg, I'm looking forward to your take here on what Amazon's up to. I just think this is a specific nomenclature because Amazon has hundreds of fulfillment centers around the world, they, or around the, the country. They have these things called delivery stations. They have automated, they have lights out where 14 people work in a million square foot facility. They have manual stations. They have all manner of these stations. So I'm not exactly sure what facility they're talking about, but it, perhaps it was all distributed solely to this central location and then distributed to the spokes at some point. But yeah. I'm with you. My response was maybe I thought they already had that. Right. I mean, I'm, I applaud them because they have completely changed the industry. You know, they didn't invent one day delivery. There were companies well before that that were trying to do even same day delivery. One of them was called same day, but they have scaled it to an incredible level to where it is equated with them, which is impressive. I have to say I've had a few disappointments lately and I'm, baffled as to why and it's just like no notice just oh your thing that was supposed to be there today or tomorrow is coming three days later two days later now so i think me and andy need to have a little discussion about that because right now i'm ordering chunk of stuff from amazon so i'll take that offline but i i think they are a great model honestly and exactly what mike said they get so much consumer data and the consumer is really what you're predicting not the products at all and they do such good work with it to both define what and where their network ought to be or ought to land and they're kind of the north star for everyone who's trying to do this i often wonder i mean i, I as much as it goes against my grain, I often wonder why companies don't just all use Amazon to distribute their stuff. It would just be so much more efficient. They have overbuilt their facility specifically for the purpose of giving or providing services like their own to other companies. So it's a really interesting thing. They're always out front. They've got a huge advantage. They're one of the most financially well-managed companies in the entire world and always have been even when they were a startup and even when they weren't making money their free cash flow and things like that are are exceptional and the other thing we have to remember guys is this is not their profit center this is their lost right. leader right their lost leader is billions and billions and billions of dollars in retail sales they make all of their money all of it on AWS, on the cloud. Yeah, I, I agree as usual with, with Greg's observation. It is a bit of semantics, which I think everyone knows. I'm not a huge fan of like arguing semantics, but Greg is spot on there with this idea that it is, I think, about to some degree the vocabulary, right? Because I have like 15 miles away from me, they, they built two or three years ago a, a big Amazon fulfillment center, right? It's probably mm -hmm. not one of these eight but, I mean, if you go back several years ago, right, they had one large facility in 52 of the biggest U.S. Uh, cities, right? So it's not like they haven't been doing it. Part of me thinks this is Amazon wanting to continue to educate 
the market around the capabilities they have as a supply chain. Maybe, Greg, to your point, maybe as a way to start to plant the seeds around, let us be your fulfillment arm, right? Yeah, it could be. Let us be your last mile type of partner, right? And talking more about that. And I also think, let's be fair around this, right? Not all the press we read about Amazon is positive. So I think, you know, what, what they also might be trying to do is start to put some positive stuff in the bank for when we get the next story about how they treat their workers, you know, not the best. Right. But I'm also a big believer in giving them credit when, to your point, Greg, around the excellence of their supply chain as a company with a part of the business that is not where they make all their money. It's another, uh, another great point, Greg. It's not this part of the business. But it's what nine zeros probably, right? If I yeah. do the math right, at least nine zeros that, that happen <laughs> yeah. on, on this particular part of the business. And I think, you know, I think we have to acknowledge also that this is a company that got into logistics, whatever you want to call it, this aspect of the business in 2014. Why? Yes. Because the post office, UPS and FedEx failed them during peak season. They said, We'll do it ourselves. So and they have done it and done it so much better than traditional parcel carriers, 3PLs, fulfillment companies, all of those, whatever you want to call them, that accumulation of services. They have done it so much better, particularly for themselves, but even for other organizations. And in a relatively short time, they have built one of the greatest supply chains in history. I mean, Greg, it's amazing when you think about the head start that. I mean, don't get me started on the post office, but the head start that the post office had, the head start that UPS and FedEx both had, DHL and others, that the head start that they had, I mean, Amazon, despite, you know, whatever, because I know Amazon can elicit some very visceral responses similar to Walmart in some people. But if you look at, to your point, right, 2014, they basically have nothing. The post office has been around for, you know, it's, I would argue, maybe too long, but it's been around a while, right? Amazon's fantastic at identifying something that's not working and inserting themselves into the ecosystem. And they're also really good at things that don't work. I think my wife was the last person that had the Amazon Fire Phone, right? That didn't necessarily work, or the Amazon Phone, whatever it was called. Yeah. That didn't necessarily work out. But they're really good at punting things that don't work. So they are a great supply chain, and there's a lot we can learn from them. All right. I got to get a word in. I got to get a word in, Greg. And Sorry. Mark. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. All right. <laughs> it won't be the valuable analysis between that y'all just laid out this. Well, we should publish the last seven minutes or 10 minutes. It's really good yeah, stuff on Amazon. Good <laughs> historically and kind of what's ahead and even maybe why they're messaging that, which both of y'all spoke to. All right. So two quick thoughts. First off, maybe they dropped the term centers as they were talking about the eight regional, maybe we call it the eight halls of justice or the eight fortresses of solitude, something that makes it special and stick out. Greg, to your point about nomenclature. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Be, <laughs> my the son, eight ben halls be, of fulfillment. Or yes. Great. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> Caverns of fulfillment. Yes. <laughs> and then secondly, talking about may how it could be messaging for what's to come. Have y'all been tracking what McDonald's has been doing in terms of raising the prices of food across the world, moving away kind of from its dollar meal, which for years was you get like seven Big Macs and f- five fries and three Cokes for a buck or something. 
that's been some interesting trends when it comes to McDonald's. And so we'll see what, what's to come with Amazon, what they could be announcing that they maybe use this news as a counterbalance. But nevertheless, let's keep driving. And Gino, great to have you here. Great conversation as always when Mike visits. Thank you for that. Gina, hopefully it's it's okay when Mike's not with us too. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. And going back Most to the minutes. distance and cost of service and all that stuff. Peter Bollet, all night and all day. Great to have you here. Truth, we did an exercise not long ago, keeping stock in Montreal versus Toronto. Cost of transport lanes one way versus the other made the decision clear. Oh, that's Next. interesting. Isn't it though? All right. So for the sake of time, and again, we dropped the story, folks, right here. One click away. Y'all check it out. Let us know what you think. But great takes here from Greg and Mike, as always. All right, moving right along. Now, this is a bit, I think, Greg, we've talked about uh, these things before. Certainly, we talked about provenance on the front end. But, you know, I, I still believe this might get not enough attention out there in the world. We're talking about a neat read via the supermarket perimeter Interesting publication there. Tuna, grouper, and mackerels. Oh, my. So we're talking about how grocery, ch- grocery chains are meeting customer demands for sustainability and traceability when it comes to the seafood supply chain. I can never say this business name, so y'all help me here. Is it Ahold Delays? Ahold. Ahold. Ahold Del Hayes, but Ahold is sufficient. Okay. Uh, that brings to mind my... A constant emphasis on the wrong syllable. So, That's all right, I hold Del Hayes. All right, I hold Del Hayes USA operates more than 2,000 food stores and distribution centers nationwide. And in 2018, they kicked off an, initi- an initiative to vet and audit all seafood products in their inventory in partnership with the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. They have assessed more than 3,000 products already. And another initiative, I'll give you all several examples here. Iowa-based grocer Hy-Vee has published a complete list of fishing vessels that supplies a company with fresh, frozen, and canned private label tuna, all part of an effort to identify and avoid any vessels directly associated with human rights and or labor rights concerns. And then finally, I've certainly been in plenty of publics here. Lakeland, Florida-based Grocer Publix is investing in initiatives such as automating the country of origin labeling process, a.k.a. COOL, as well as researching and investing in better ways to limit the unintended catches uh, of ocean wildlife. So when, when fisher, fishermen and folks are out there trying to catch one fish to catch all kinds of other stuff, how can we limit the catch of all that other stuff, right? So they're investing in ways of looking at that. So all I think really cool when it comes to trying to meet the demand for more sustainability, more transparency, and more traceability of what we eat and purchase and all. So, Greg, I want to start with you this time. I had to take that crab off. That crab was staring a hole <laughs> at me, I felt. Greg, <laughs> your thoughts on what we're seeing here with these groceries, gro- grocers, rather. Living in a fishing village, I have a great empathy for both fish and for the people who fish them. So, you know, the what they're talking about is what's called bycatch, which honestly I love to learn about in the local restaurants. Shrimp are big in Hilton Head, and there is quite a bit of other fish caught with that. There are other ways to fish, but that's the way that most fish is caught, and it's the nets that bring all that stuff in. So I think knowing where it's from, knowing that it is what it is, because I'm going to tell you people, about 70% of the time that you think you're eating 
scallops, you're eating what's called skate. And most people have been eating skate for so long that when they eat scallops, it seems foreign to them. <laughs> I'll just tell you this. If it's bigger than that, it's not a scallop. It's a skate. So there's your public service for the day. <laughs> but I, I think this whole notion of provenance and also how it's caught and where it's caught and by whom and how they treat the fish, the sea, and the people is really important to know. There's a lot of overfishing out there. Rarely is it, you know, it's very rare that it's around, I mean, it's, what should I say, egregiously happening around North America. A lot of times in the, let's just say, China Sea and areas around the Japanese and, and Chinese fish fisheries are well known for just what I, I don't know what to say, tragic mm. um, means of catching fish. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's an important thing for us to know. The, the other nice thing is that all of this is kind of a natural progression because large companies also have to, they also have to be responsible for these companies' emissions. And that they are, the mere fact that they are connected to them helps them understand if these are good corporate citizens generally, if they are good corporate citizens around sustainability, or not just of the fish, but of fossil fuels and things like that, but also around human rights, which is absolutely required in a lot of countries, not in the U.S. yet, but virtually everywhere else. And uh, yeah, I just, I don't know. I just think it's a good thing. I, I see a lot of, just on my beach, I see a lot of, I don't know, offenses. So we have these things, hermit crabs, or not hermit crabs, I'm sorry, horseshoe crabs. And I was invested in a mutual fund, not a mutual fund, an ETF that had this company, James River Company, that does this just terrible way of fishing that kills too many of them and that sort of thing. And when they drag nets across them, when the shrimpers move inland a bit in the fall, in September and forward, they tend to disrupt these horseshoe, sorry, yeah, horseshoe crabs quite a bit. And they're those big crabs. You often see them look like they've got a hood on. And they're kind of rare and special creatures. They're leftover dinosaurs. So right. that's my litmus test. Do right by the horseshoe crab. <laughs> and, of course, critical for the healthcare industry. Speaking of horseshoe crab, they're trying to yes. find better ways of using its blood without killing the creature. The best way, just as long as we're on that topic, Scott, is that there are sufficient synthetics to handle the demand for that. But the James River Company has too much invested in using the blood of these crabs. So they have all these gov they have all this government intervention to allow them to continue to do the business by using the crab's blood rather than creating the synthetics like competitive companies are doing. Okay, that was a twist. I'm gonna have to dive into that and more at eleven. What interesting. And Greg, really appreciate that perspective and especially your firsthand view down there in Hilton Head Island. Literally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mike, your thoughts when it comes to the seafood supply chain. Yeah, I think we're definitely seeing more and more of, a, of an emphasis on this, particularly by retailers. I think, though, to Greg's point, that this needs to be part, though, of a broader sustainability story, right? So, you know, it's great that you're focused on the responsible seafood side of this, but if you're doing nothing on your transportation fleet, say, to drive less miles, right, or to do something around electrification of your vehicles or whatever else it might be, human, mm -hmm. human trafficking and, and human um, relations type of stuff, right? 
then it's not a complete strategy. So I definitely uh, am for this this approach to sustainability. I, I think it's also interesting because I, I think companies, as I mentioned, A, it's need to be part of a more broader, more comprehensive sustainability strategy, which I don't know that some of these companies could actually articulate it outside of what they're doing around uh, the seafood industry. But I also think you, you have to kind of know your customer base, right? Because there are there is a growing number of demographics that actually care about this and, and actually potentially are willing to pay more for sustainable, sustainably sourced whatever. You know, we're talking about seafood. It could be beef. It could be whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but you also have, but you also rightly or wrongly have a demographic that says, look, I just want to pay one ninety nine a pound for shrimp. Uh, that's all I care about, right? So I, I think organizations just need to understand how much do they want to push this with their customer base. Yep. But I also think, and, and Greg, great comment around scallops versus skate. When I, we have a couple of really nice seafood restaurants here and our servers are very well educated on the seafood, where it comes from and all that. The reason I share that story is because retailers, supermarket retailers are going to need to, if they're not doing it now, they need to invest in the store associates because that's where the questions are going to come. Mm-hmm. The questions are not going to come via email into some corporate communications. <laughs> they're going to come to the seafood person who says, explain to me now how you're harvesting these crabs. Mm-hmm. Tell me, how are you doing it? And you've got someone making like 18 bucks an hour, right? Who, uh, I don't know. I just go to the back room and pull it out. Right. That's, they come in a box. <laughs> come in a box. Yeah, the boxes come three days a week. So, sorry, I don't mean to make light, light of that. But if you look at some places, I'll use Wegmans as an example, that I think does a really good job of educating their fresh food associates, everything yeah. from recipes, which I think is, is as important, but also to the nature of how stuff got from where it originally lived to now it's in the cooler. Right? And I think retailers miss an opportunity to kind of reinforce that sustainable story if your store associates cannot play that back for people because that's where the questions are going to come from yeah well said good all catch. right good catch great catch so to speak no, yes I didn't mean it that way <laughs> come on you did it was uh, good all right so a couple things here on a more serious note karai Jose, great to see you, karai Going back to uh, those fishing vessels that uh, that, that grocer was publishing a list of, Kura says the New Yorker is reporting that China forces minorities from Xinjiang to work in industries around the country, as we know. As it turns out, he says, this includes handling much of the seafood sent to America and Europe. Thousands of tons of seafood imported from factories uh, using forced labor continues to enter the U.S. Man. All right. And then on a much, much, much lighter note. Greg, going back to your comments, old Peter Bolay was hoping, as he says, you'd move into a Forrest Gump, Bubba Gump shrimp tirade, <laughs> popcorn shrimp, fried shrimp, shrimp cocktail. So, Greg, I know you could do that. Shrimp soup, <laughs> shrimp etouffee. Right. That's about all there is. Yeah. I declare. There you go, Peter. Yeah, that's good. So much to this story and so much, kidding aside, serious issues that, that we're going to have to address. But the cool, the good news here. Greg and Mike, as y'all might hopefully agree, with transparency and sunlight, you know, comes the knowledge and the ability to recognize these issues and then do something about it in an informed manner. That's so important. 
Great. Okay. Greg and Mike, this has been what a great conversation. So before we wrap, I got a couple final questions from Mike, and then we're going to get Greg's key patented key takeaway of the day. All right. So, Mike, what again, appreciate you joining us here on the first Wednesday of each month. This happens to be the first of November, even though I did get my dates confused, I think, early in the first part of the show. So you talk, you got your finger on the pulse. All the movers and shakers out there across global supply chain really enjoy your work at Gardner. You and your team's work. I know you're a big proponent of, hey, I stand on the shoulder of giants. you got a great team there. But, Mike, in the last, since the last time you joined us, about a month ago, what's one conversation with a, a senior supply chain leader that's really offered up a eureka moment for you? Yeah, I think when I think about the talent portion uh, of my team, I think there are a lot of discussions going on, continue to go on around this idea of how do we return to work? We kind of came through that during the pandemic. And I think there, there are a number of organizations that are revisiting this through the lens of we want everyone back in the office. And I would advise people based on our research, that is not a good idea that you, the flexibility and the productivity, quite frankly, that emerged during the pandemic with remote working, hybrid working, all that kind of stuff, I think continues. And I think organizations that want to go back to kind of the draconian, I, we have an office, so therefore you need to be there five days a week. People, that is going to force people out of your organization. And we already know how hard it is to bring and replace that skill set. So my advice to organizations is to really think long and hard about your, if you're going to revisit your return to work strategy. All of our research suggests organizations are having much more success in a hybrid environment. Hey, we have a building, right? Here are three or four use cases that make sense for you to come in and work together. Right. And if that's one day a week, you know, two days a month, whatever it might be, this building is here for you. This idea that you need to be here Monday through Friday from eight to five just because I want you here is is going to be problematic for a lot of organizations if they go down that road. Mm. Greg, your uh, quick thoughts. Yeah, I think you have to examine why you want people in the office. Right. I mean, yep. I know why I want people in the office. It's because. Honestly, water cooler talk is much more productive than talk over Zoom. That casual comment that somebody might make passing you in the hall can change the trajectory of a company. It absolutely 100% can. I've seen it happen. On the other hand, I think there are some workers that there are some situations where they don't trust their workers. And that's yeah. the core of it. If you don't trust your workers, get rid of the ones you don't trust. Mm. Right. <laughs> right. And I also think that there are workers who work much better at home and will work much more. Programmers, don't make them get out of their pajamas and quit smoking pot. <laughs> Let them do that at home and you'll get a lot more out of them. I'm serious. Yeah. Let them play guitar at lunch. I'm just talking about particular people here and you are. <laughs> play your guitar at lunch and, you know, get home for your kids event or be home for your kids events. Fine. I think that's fine. It's about, Scott, the same thing we always talk about. It's about outcomes. And I think there's, there are also yeah. some roles where people can, because of the type of role that they are and the type of people that take that role, where you can and probably should let them work at home. Accountants, they're not going to shortchange you. 
making sure something doesn't get shortchanged is their job, right? If they want to work from home, let them do it. Engineers, you know, unless they're ideating on something like Mike was talking about, I think there are lots of jobs where it fits. Now, marketing people, on the other hand, <laughs> you need to keep an eye on those uh, sales guys. <laughs> sales guys, as long as they produce, I mean, they've been able to run the planet as much as they want. I've never met a better golfer than a, than a lifelong salesperson, right? But also, they make three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year, and they make much, much more than that for their company. So, think about the outcome that you want out of these people. Don't just mandate it because you want them back. It's outcomes, Greg. You're spot on. I mean, that, that really should be the litmus test, right? What outcome do I want? What's the best vehicle to to deliver it? And then trust people to get the work done. Yeah, well said. All right. I got to leave it there. I bet we got some hard stops coming up. Really appreciate all the great comments we couldn't get to here today. Great to see Karai and Gino and PB and everyone else here today. Mike, uh, for the sake of time, how just how can folks connect with you and the Gartner team? What's the best way? LinkedIn, or just drop me an email, mike.griswold at gardner.com. I will put in one quick plug. We have our planning summit in Phoenix right. uh, at the end of November. I will be there. Feel free to look me up. And if you have any interest in anything related to planning, you'll want to uh, attend that. It's a place to be. I've seen people it going there, and I've seen people going to the London. I think you have just element. Just wrapped. Yep. That's what it just was. Wrapped. Okay. Well, Mike, always a pleasure. The one and only Mike Griswold with Gartner. We look forward to already to seeing you next month. Hope you have Can't a great, wait. great month of November. And if we don't talk to you, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Thanks. You as well. Looking forward to next month. Oh my month. gosh, we're talking about Thanksgiving. Thank it has been a year. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Good to see Bye-bye. you. All right. Greg, yeah, believe it or not, it's hard to believe. It's first of November. Thanksgiving is just, I think it's on the 23rd, 24th this year. So right around the corner. I'm just going to be a straight. All that we covered today was one key takeaway that folks got to keep front and center. If you feel like you need a union for your job, consider the possibility that maybe you ought to work somewhere else or that if you need a union to make sure you get a living wage out of your job, that you should instead spend the money you would spend on union dues getting the training for a job that's much more valuable and more long-term feasible. That's one thing that jumps out at me. I mean, I just, yeah, I just don't, don't get What's it. That? I, lo- I liked what you mentioned earlier. This is why we can't reshore nice things. That was wonderful. <laughs> uh, Mike Griswold said that these wins are short-term wins for workers, long-term challenges and losses, perhaps for the automotive industry. I thought all of that conversation was that and the Amazon, con- actually the whole, the whole day today. I thought was a really good one that uh, hopefully. Well, I mean, you brought Mike Griswold. Right? That's true. We brought Mike Griswold on the show. What do you? Yeah. <laughs> but what else would we expect? Of course, and we and he always delivers. Always yes, he, delivers. He does. And um, I should say when we when we added Gino's compliment there, great conversations always when Mike visits. And then we said, oh, hopefully it's okay when he's not here. He goes sometimes. So Gino, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> thank you, my friend. Always a we pleasure. know where you live, pal. That's right, North Alabama. <laughs> Always a pleasure. But seriously, thanks, everybody. I know we couldn't get everybody's comment and question and remark over there. Thanks for being here. Greg White, always a pleasure to knock out these conversations. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, likewise. Appreciate it. All right, folks. The onus is now on you. Take a nugget. There's so much to truckload today. A nugget of knowledge or observation or data or perspective and put it in action. It's all about deeds, not words. Your team will appreciate it. And on that (laughs) note, on behalf of the team here at Supply Chain Now, Scott Luton challenging you. Do good, give forward, 
be the change. And we'll see you next time right back here at Supply Chain Out. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Supply Chain Now.